John chapter 21. John 21 is a joy and privilege to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. I'm grateful for the friendship I have with your pastor. We knew each other several years ago in college. I was delighted to find that he was here serving um, in this church. Uh, my in-laws uh, live just up uh, in the Australia Mountains up here in this subdivision. So we are here to worship with you last summer. Grateful to be with you again this morning. John chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a few moments. What is your greatest spiritual failure? What do you hope no one ever finds out about your heart? It's kind of a painful memory, isn't it? Perhaps there's something that is coming to your mind. Maybe it's something that you haven't confessed. Perhaps it's something that happened even this week. Have you ever been overwhelmed by a failure in your life, wanting to just kind of hide away from others because of your shame and your guilt? Well, we know our Christ knows very clearly what's going on in your life. He knows about that issue. And in our text today, we'll see that he is eager. He is glad. He pursues the forgiveness of fallen disciples. Our Christ loves to restore fallen disciples, but repentance is required. And in this process that he leads Peter through, it can be painful, but it is purposeful. It is purposeful. Jesus had said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all, the rest of the disciples, said the same. In another gospel, we read, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And then in John 18, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. In this chapter, Jesus appears to seven of his disciples by the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. This is the third time we're told that he's appeared to them. We're told in both Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus had already appeared to Peter. So they had had some kind of one-on-one conversation that we're not made aware of. Now Jesus will soon lead them and yet before he does, he seeks an audience with these seven disciples in order to publicly restore Peter after his humiliating fall. Our text this morning will teach us that Jesus does not hesitate to forgive and restore weak and unfaithful followers. Let's look at our text this morning. I want to begin reading in verse 1. We'll read all the way through our text in verse 19. This is God's revealed word that still speaks to us even today, this morning. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, 
and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to, the, said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these he, Peter, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Then Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's ask for God's blessing and help as we look at this text together. Our gracious God in heaven, these are your words for us, your people this morning. We know that your word alone gives life when we confess that we need to be made new again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this isn't only Peter's story. This is every follower of Jesus Christ's story. We are unfaithful. We can't live up to even our own boasts, our own desires to follow you. Lord, and you're seeking to do something through our weakness. You're showing us how great you are and how needy we are. Lord, help us to respond with humility. Help us to see Christ high and lifted up. And may he be honored in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.
This morning, I want to consider this text from the vantage point of what Jesus is seeking very intentionally to accomplish in Peter's life and in ours. So we have just three points this morning. First, Jesus initiates repentance. We should notice as we begin this section, who initiates all of the action? Who begins the conversations? Who directs the conversation? Jesus seeks out Peter and initiates his restoration through a very difficult and painful conversation. He meets Peter right where he is in the shame of his sin. And I want you to consider for just a moment the hurt, the personal relationship that was violated by Peter's denial. It was personal and painful. We read in that passage from Luke, and and Luke records this amazing detail that Peter and Jesus, they make eye contact in the middle of Peter's denial. Do you think Peter's thought of that moment again? I think it probably haunted him. It was a source of great and deep shame and pain. And yet, In front of these six other disciples, Jesus is seeking to restore Peter and he goes about it in perhaps an unusual way. He asks him this specific question three times. Jesus isn't trying to just deal with the surface level of the sin. He wants to get to the root, to the heart of what's been happening in Peter's life. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus is leading Peter to fully face the depth of his denials with this thrice-repeated question. We're supposed to see the connection between Peter's denial and his restoration. John is going to highlight this in several ways. First, notice the name that Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John, except for these two places, their bookends at the beginning and at the end. Throughout the book, he calls Peter Peter, the rock, he's given him that name. But in chapter 142, verse 42, when Jesus calls him, he says, Simon, son of John. And now here at the end of the book, Jesus will use this name again. It's not the way that they spent time together using that common name of Peter. It's kind of like when your child has done something wrong and his mother calls him by his full given name. I want your attention. This is really important. It's as if Jesus is indicating that they need to start again at the beginning when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. And isn't even that a comfort? Jesus isn't giving up on him. Second, John is highlighting where this conversation is headed by including a very small detail. We heard it read in the scripture reading this morning. Perhaps you didn't notice it, but we heard it mentioned again as I read through John 21. The disciples are now gathered around a specific kind of fire. This isn't hugely uh, impactful. This isn't hugely important, except uh, John is giving us some indication of why he's here. We read that they were surrounded or they met around a small charcoal fire. And when do you think the last and only other time a specific reference is made to that kind of fire in this gospel? 
It was in chapter 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them. And when someone said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. John is telling us where he's headed. Finally, the most obvious is that Jesus repeats this question three times. Just as Peter fulfilled Jesus' words there at the Last Supper that he would deny him three times. I want you to understand what Jesus is doing. It's as if he's a spiritual surgeon and he is placing Peter under his knife. He's doing heart surgery in order to remove the cancerous growth of sin in his life, he must fully open up and expose that affected area in order to remove that sin. And I want us to see and appreciate how beautiful this is as Jesus begins this surgery on Peter's heart. D.A. Carson writes of this text, whatever potential for future service Peter had depended not only on forgiveness from Jesus, but also reinstatement to this ministry amongst the disciples. I want you to notice very well as we looked and read through verse uh, 17 that Jesus is intentionally putting Peter through a painful conversation. Why repeat this question three times if it's going to bring Peter to feel such grief? Isn't this kind of unkind of Jesus? Why Jesus focus on this failure so strongly? It's certainly not because Jesus doesn't love him. We're told that God chastens every son that he loves. You see, love doesn't ignore sin. Biblical love doesn't pretend that the sin isn't there. It doesn't whitewash it, but it leans into it and points the way forward and past it toward forgiveness and restoration. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for Peter. He's not doing this to him. He's doing this for him. That's what he does in our life when the Spirit points out our sin. We see this further in the question that he asks. Do you love me more than these? Now, what is Jesus referring to? What is the more than these? What's the comparison being made here? We can't see his hand gestures. We don't know if he's pointing back to the boats and the ships and the fish. We don't know if he's pointing to the other disciples. I've always thought and even heard that it was that Peter had gone back to his former profession and he's being tempted to abandon Jesus' call to ministry. And Jesus is saying, do you love me more than your work, your career, your identity there and what you do? That's certainly possible. And the text doesn't tell us explicitly. But there's another option that I've been more convinced of over time. I think it makes better sense of the text and I'd invite you to see if you agree. After the 12 had celebrated the Passover supper together with Jesus, he prophesied that they would all fall away. Listen to how Matthew records that in verse 26. Then Jesus said to them, you, the 12, will all fall away because of me this night. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now here's Peter, the spokesman, the bold one who's always talking, right? Peter answered him, though they all fall away, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says and contradicts his Lord. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, with whom is Peter comparing himself here? What does this demonstrate about how he views himself, how he views the other disciples, and even Jesus? Even here, Peter still sees Jesus as a stepping stone to his own glory. Of course not. Jesus, I'm strong. Even if I have to contradict your sovereign divine word of prophecy, I won't deny you. Even Jesus is a pawn in Peter's pursuit of self-exaltation. Are we ever guilty of that? At that last supper, Peter is convinced of the sincerity of his own courage and good intentions. He's placing his confidence in his own abilities, even though he does not know what is coming. Peter is a man filled with pride and is convinced he'll be able to stand with Jesus even if all the other disciples are not able to. And now, enter back into John 21. I think Jesus is essentially asking Peter, do you stand by those words? Do you really love me more than all these? And yet even here, Jesus is not put off by Peter's foolish haste, by his arrogance. Listen to what Luke records of Jesus' prediction. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Instead of comparing yourself to them and standing over them, encourage them. Doesn't this tell us that Jesus is even more ready to forgive us and restore us to himself and in his service than we are to repent and ask for his forgiveness? Doesn't this magnify the greatness of our God's grace? With Jesus, no failure of his followers is ever final. Jesus' love and mercy for an unfaithful disciple is greater than their greatest offense. But notice how Peter responds to Jesus' question now. It's in the affirmative, but notice in, in verse 15, and then the following verses and question and answers, he's dropped any thought of loving Jesus more than his fellow disciples. He simply answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I think he's now ashamed of his rash words of comparison. The you of you know is emphatic as Peter is appealing no longer to his own words or his actions. They have no credibility, do they? He says you and you alone know. It's easy for us to simply read over these words, but can you put yourself in Peter's place? His answers are sincere and as I studied this passage, they're much more humble than I first recognized. It's as if he's saying, in spite of my bitter failure, I do love you. I want to love you. And you know that. 
looking back on our sin, seeing it for what it is, is always humbling, but it is necessary in order to pursue true repentance. The point here is we have to be brought to the end of ourselves. This is what humility before a holy God is. It's no longer saying, I sinned, but they contributed to it. It's, it's no longer anybody else's in view. As this pattern continues, these questions are asked three times. Peter's deeply grieved. The word for grieved is a strong word. This is the process of the expert surgeon. He wants to get right down to the root. He's intending to bring Peter to grief over his sin. It doesn't just mean that Peter's upset or distraught, but deeply saddened. This word is used of a person who is weeping, being overcome with grief. And notice how Peter's third reply changes. There in verse number 17. He no longer answers, yes, Lord. Now he relies fully on the Lord's intimate knowledge of his own heart and motives. Peter is humbly recognizing he has no leg to stand on. His love has been tested and it has failed the test. One author notes, perhaps at long last, Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength. And he's realized the hollowness of affirming his own loyalty in a way that relies more on his own power of will than on Jesus's enablement. Coming to Jesus as a guilty sinner and receiving not judgment and rejection, but forgiveness and grace, it fuels our love for him. In Luke Luke 7, when the sinful woman anointed Jesus' feet with her tears, she anoints him with that costly perfume as he dines with Simon the Pharisee. Jesus said of her that she loved little because she, or she loved much because she'd been forgiven much. And the one who's forgiven little loves little. Now there, Jesus isn't saying that anyone is truly forgiven only a little bit and that we've all sinned repeatedly and flagrantly. The issue is that not all realize how much they've been forgiven. Like Simon the Pharisee, many of us think we're basically good people who don't need that much forgiveness. And therefore, Jesus, his love doesn't mean that much to us. Such people love Jesus little. But when God opens your eyes to the depths of your sin, to the nature of your heart, to its need, and he still says your sins are forgiven, you love Jesus much in response. That's a great kindness, isn't it? Remember how much you've been forgiven. Repentance begins when blame shifting ends. Repentance begins when blame shifting ends. Notice that Jesus never talks about Peter's behavior. Isn't that interesting? Peter lied. He was disloyal. He was cowardly. He even uses a curse. Instead, Jesus goes to the heart of his sin, his love. What's the root sin beneath your own behavioral sin? heart of Peter's sin was pride and self-exaltation. At the heart of our own sin is always the desire to play God and push him out to the margins of our life, isn't it? 
I want my own way. Every one of our sins is denying him his right to be at the center of our lives. Peter will write in 1 Peter 5 that God resists the proud. He must hold the proud at a distance, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, our pride refuses his grace. He's eager to give it to us, but our pride withholds him, and therefore he withholds it from us. Jesus came to rescue sinners, and we must understand our need before we can be healed. Christian, don't forget that even as a sinner who's been saved by grace, you need to look very carefully into the law of liberty to reveal your heart and your need of Christ. Jesus lived and died to restore sinners, to bring them to himself, to put them into his service, not because they're worthy, not because of what they can accomplish, but because of his grace and what he wants to do through them. What does godly repentance look like? That's one of the questions we would find in this text. Paul answers that in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We have a very clear and ready illustration in two of Jesus' disciples, right, that betrayed him, Judas and Peter. Both of them grieve deeply over their sin. Both of them weep bitterly. One is restored. One cannot handle his guilt. You see, ungodly grief feels sorrow over the outcome of our choices. It's still focused on self. It continues to hold God at the margins of life. It will not turn to God. Picture Judas. He knew what he did was wrong. He would not turn to God. But godly grief refuses to look at itself. It sees its offense against God. It stops saying, how am I offending other people or how will other people see me? Stop shifting the blame. It won't accept excuses from itself. It will look at sin full in the face. This true repentance admits what God already knows and runs to him. It makes much of him. Self-centered regret runs from God. Godly sorrow and true repentance run toward him. Now, all four of the Gospels record Peter's denial. But one of them records it in the most unflattering light. And I think this is an illustration of how much Peter was forgiven and lived in light of that forgiveness. Do you know which gospel records Peter's denial in the most unflattering light? It's Mark's gospel. And which of the apostles did Mark rely on to write all of his gospel? Peter. Peter. In the Gospel of Mark, we read of his denial, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter is not afraid to recount just how fully he'd failed his Lord. True repentance leads us to freedom in Christ. We don't have to be afraid of just how awful and costly our sin is. 
We don't have to shift the blame towards somebody else in order to preserve some of our own dignity. We don't say, well, it was my spouse. We don't say it was my child or my sibling or my boss, and that's why I responded so poorly. We don't have to fear what others will think of us if they really knew the truth about how ugly our pride, our sin, our hearts truly are. You see, true repentance leads to freedom because before Christ, we can humbly admit who we are and take comfort in the truth that God loves me in spite of the ugliness. Author Jerry Bridges emphasizes the value of godly sorrow this way. He writes, sin grieves God. We must not downplay the seriousness of it in the life of a believer, but we must come to terms with the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sins. Repentance is one of the Christian's highest privileges. A repentant Christian focuses on God's mercy and grace Any moment in our lives when we bask in God's mercy and grace is our highest moment. When we fail and fail we will, the spirit of God will work on us and bring us to the foot of the cross where Jesus carried our failures. Bridges concludes that is potentially a glorious moment. One who draws on God's mercy and grace is quick to repent but also slow to sin. Jesus pursues Peter in his guilt and shame, and now he goes further in this surgery. As a surgeon, he doesn't just open him up, he addresses the issue and restores him to health and service. So secondly, Jesus restores to service. Each time Jesus asks this question, he follows up by commanding Peter to feed my lambs, then tend my sheep, then feed my sheep. Now, how do we know that Jesus is restoring Peter here? Well, consider what Jesus had said about his sheep in John 10, earlier in this gospel. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own this sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and carries nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now think of the language that Jesus is giving in his charge to Peter. Jesus, the good shepherd who loves his sheep, who's given his life for these sheep, will commission unfaithful Peter to feed and care for that which is most precious to him. Matthew Henry writes of this reconciliation. Christ, when he forgave Peter, trusted him with the most valuable treasure he had on this earth. Now, does this restoration mean that Peter was now fully mature, fully sanctified, without some of the same weaknesses? Of course not. But doesn't that continue to magnify the grace of Christ even more? He's not looking for perfect servants. Christ is willing to use imperfect, weak, and immature, but growing believers to serve him in the strength that he supplies. Peter, through his failure and restoration, understands more fully that his responsibility is to set his gaze on Christ, not his own abilities, nor his own purposes, but on Christ. Jesus loves to restore fallen disciples. 
He's not afraid to entrust his sheep to imperfect shepherds and followers because he, the good shepherd, is still keeping them. There are no perfect servants, only a perfect shepherd. And that's the point. That's the point. This call to feed and care for the sheep is first a call specifically for Peter. Peter will apply it in 1 Peter 5 to the elders of the church, but it also applies to all believers who serve in ministry. If you're caring for other believers in any way, you are tending his sheep. Every believer is called to ministry, to service. And we are first to remember that they're not our sheep. Have you ever been frustrated in a church setting that people don't do things the way you want to do them? But no church family belongs to the shepherds, the pastors of the church. No children's ministry or class belongs to that teacher. No believers in a family belong in a spiritual sense to the parents. Every minister and er every ministry and area of Christian service must be entered into with the understanding that we serve the great shepherd of his sheep. They're not our own. We're to love and serve others for his sake and not our own. How often do we find that we're seeking self-glory through our service? Doesn't that come out when we're upset that we're not being recognized like we ought to be? Why would we need to be recognized? It's his work through us if any good is accomplished. Certainly, we want to honor one another. But more than that, we want to honor Christ in us and through us. Do you view your service in the church or in your home as subordinate to his care of his people? Jesus here is demonstrating how to care for weak, immature, and vulnerable sheep. Will you let his gracious and careful care demonstrated here shape how you treat others here in this body, in your home, amongst your family? Sheep are not very easy to care for, are they? They're not perfect. They require great patience. It's a lot like parenting in that way. As we seek to shepherd our children for his glory, he continues his parenting process of us. The key here is to serve others out of the overflow of your love for Christ. You've got to fight to keep that at the center. I am serving him. Not everything has to be done my way. As you grow deeper and more secure in your love for him, your service to others will become more gracious and more humble and more gentle and more loving. Theologian John Owen wrote back in 1657, believers obey Christ as the one by whom our obedience is accepted by God. Believers know all their duties are weak, imperfect, and unable to abide in God's presence. Therefore, they look to Christ as the one who bears the iniquity of their holy things. He's saying our service before God is never perfect and without need of his grace. Another Puritan put it this way, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the lamb. We can't do anything perfectly or righteously in his sight apart from his grace, apart from dependence. So we must always depend on his grace, even in our obedience. Jesus has initiated Peter's repentance. He restores him to his service 
Finally, Jesus calls for obedience. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus will prophesy Peter's future suffering. And verse 18 at first appears somewhat confusing as it sounds like this proverb about being old and not being able to go where you want to go. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What's happening here? Jesus seems to be predicting that Peter will die. He will die by crucifixion. The expression to stretch out your hands was widely understood as a reference to crucifixion. They will be stretched out for you. Do we have any real reason to understand the proverb this way? We do because John in verse 19 tells us this is exactly what Jesus is pointing to. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. He would follow his master's footsteps. In John 13, 36, when Peter had said that he would die with him, Jesus responded, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Consider how Peter now understood how God could be glorified through death now that he had seen the risen Christ. Death was not the end. It did not have the final say in Jesus' life. Therefore, suffering and death are not final in the life of his followers either. Peter fully embraces these truths. He writes much about that in his first letter. Jesus in his grace is telling Peter that he will face the test of being identified with Jesus again. The very same test he failed. That means great suffering for him and still Jesus is saying, Peter, you'll pass that test. There are two prominent themes in 1 Peter. They are suffering and glory, and Peter never forgot this conversation with Jesus. He talks about that. Those themes are woven into his own life and message to other followers of Christ. He had learned these lessons, continued to learn them well. You see, his focus was no longer on how he could demonstrate his own strength, how he could prove himself before others, how he was Peter. His gaze was fixed on Jesus. Our Christ loves to restore, strengthen, and enable weak disciples because his beauty and glory are most clearly displayed to us and others in our weakness. That's his purpose. Kevin DeYoung summarizes this text this way. Peter's past failures will not determine his future legacy. That's encouraging, isn't it? Our passage encourages us to embrace that through the initiating grace of Jesus, your past failures do not have to be your future identity. How could Peter embrace this calling to suffer and die If you were told you are going to die in this way, how would you respond? How will Peter embrace this? It's because of the one who called him, because of the one who said to him, Peter, follow me. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ had come down from heaven, had taken on flesh, had died that horrid, cursed death on the cross, had propitiated, exhausted the wrath of God, and by his love had drawn Peter to himself again. And when Peter stumbled, that same love drew him again to himself. 
Peter had earlier boasted that he would be willing to lay his life down for Jesus, and he failed to follow up with that boast. Instead, Peter needed a Savior who would lay down his life for his failures. Peter responds to Jesus Christ, I love you. You know I love you. I will follow you. Wherever you lead, I will go. I want you to consider it's it's very likely that John pens these words, this story, after Peter has been crucified, after Peter has truly suffered, and this is the memory he brings to us again. Can you say this morning that you love your Christ? That you will follow him no matter what that means? Do you understand who Jesus is and what he came to do for you? Do you love him? Are you prepared to follow him? Perhaps for you, that might mean you need to repent of some sin the Spirit has brought to your mind this morning. And you need to repent deeply and sincerely, not talking about all the circumstances, not talking about the wrong that was done to you and justifying your wrong response. You need to look him full in the face and respond for the hurt that you've caused him. Are you prepared to follow him? Because the one who you follow came such a distance to live for sinners, to die for sinners, the one who's returned to glory to prepare a place for each one of these failing and faltering and weak and unfaithful sheep. And by the power of his spirit, he is with each of us all the way until we join him. This is the one who says to you, follow me, follow me. And if you understand who he is and what he's done, you say with the apostle Peter, Lord, you know everything. I love you. I'm yours. Show me where to go. I will follow. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we rejoice in the simplicity, the beauty, the power of your word. Lord, we are like Peter. We want to love you, and yet our love is faulty. We live in dependence on ourself. In many ways, we seek to be independent of you and do what we want. We choose sin. We've done that this week. We confess that as wrong and unworthy of you. And when we see how gracious you are, that you're a God who not only calls us to repentance, you restore us to yourself and call us to follow in obedience. Lord, we want to be that. May your grace help us to be that this week. May it fuel our faith. May it fuel our obedience. Forgiven disciples are slow to sin and quick to obey. Help us to remember what we've been forgiven and follow. In Jesus' name, amen.